Welcome everyone. This is our last week of our Meet the Scholar uh, initiatives that we're doing here at STR. So my name is Samina Kareem. I'm the STR Division Chair and it gives me great pleasure today to interview Richard Whittington, who's at the University of Oxford. Thank you, Richard, for being with us today. Hi there. Thanks for the invite. All right. So many of you, I'm sure already, I'm sure everybody on this call already knows Richard, um, but I want to give a quick intro to Richard. Uh, so for those of you who don't know some of the details that are interesting. So Richard is the professor of strategic management at Said Business School and Millman Fellow New College at the University of Oxford, where he joined in 1996. Previously, he was at Warwick Business School at the University of Warwick and Imperial College London. He's held numerous visiting positions, including those at University of Auckland, Harvard Business School, University of Toulouse, and HSE Paris. He has a PhD from Manchester Business School at University of Manchester. He's had numerous editorships. Um, he just completed being associate editor at Strategic Management Journal. He was at Organization Studies, and prior to that, the British Journal of Management. Uh, I checked on his CV. He's uh, organized more than seven uh, special issue editor, served as special issue editor, numerous editorial boards. I think I counted 11 at any point in time. So I've been very active in, in helping us review and, and form papers in our field. He's led multiple organizations, probably best known for actually initiating and co-founding two of them that are very significant. One is at the Strategic Management Society, the Strategy Practice Interest Group, which was founded in 2003, and then co-founding the Strategizing Activities and Practices Interest Group at the Academy of Management, so the SAP group. And recently he was elected to the SMS board um, in 2012, and he served there for three years. There were lots of numerous um, recognitions and awards, so I just put a few here. So, uh, Richard has received many research grants, several that are over 185,000 pounds, and so I just noted that here. That's a, that's a talent. Um, he was also named a Fellow of the British Academy of Management in 2006, received the Best Paper Award by the ODC Division and Academy in 2004, awarded the Management Consultant Association's Book Prize for the best management book of 1993, which was titled, What is Strategy and Does It Matter? And speaking of books, he has written or edited 11 books. I am astounded by that, um, including one that just recently came out in 2019 called Opening Strategy, Strategy Professionals and Practice Change from 1962 Today. He's published over 60 articles and has over 40,000 citations. Um, Richard is probably best known for his research on strategy as practice and investigating strategy as a kind of work and profession. And I, I put this in the slide because I think it really um, best explains what strategy as practice is, and we'll ask Richard more about this. But from the SAPIG statement online, it says, the SAPIG aims to create an developmental community for academics and practitioners who wish to advance knowledge and understanding of strategy as something people do rather than something organizations have. So please join me in welcoming Richard Whittington today. So, thank you, Richard, for, for joining us. Um, so let me just make sure I can get out of my Zoom view. 
I don't know why. There we go. Now I can see. Now I can see everyone better. Um, so Richard, usually, you know, what we've done in this call is we've started with something kind of casual, I guess I would say, where we ask you to tell us a little bit about where you grew up, um, how, you know, any events or people in your life when you were younger influenced you or, or greatly impacted you before you got into studying, you know, at university. So kind of your, your formative years. You could tell us a little bit about that. Uh, okay. Yeah. I grew up in Birmingham, which is a large industrial city in the middle of the United Kingdom. Uh, when I say industrial city, it was declining industrial city. And um, I think I always found in the decline of that city, the empty factories and so on and so forth, kind of um, pathos and beauty actually even. And I think some of that, and growing up surrounded by business people, family business people, um, uh, influenced me and brought me into management later. I thought the business mattered. Um, although my father was a doctor and my mother was a teacher, I was always attracted by that side of, of, of life and recognised how important it was. So business mattered and that, that was part, certainly part of my background in terms of the geography of my uh, raising as well. So, yep, who influenced me? I was a pretty slow student and until the age of 16, I actually got demoted a whole year and the age of 14. Um, most people would say I was the guy who mucked around at the back of the class, still do that. Um, at the front of the class too. Um, but uh, there's a couple of teachers, uh, English teacher, Rowe and uh, Mark Rowe and a history teacher called Keith Perry, um, who sort of drew something out of me. And that gave me a little bit of momentum at the age of 16 or 17, enough to get into university and all that stuff. So yeah, those two people I owe a lot. There are one or two other teachers I've owed a lot to since then in university, but you asked for earlier. Those are the two I, I'd mention. Well, you, you mentioned your mom was also a teacher. You said your mother, did, did she teach uh, younger children or older? She taught in a further education college. Um, so she taught um, bakers and people like that. And funnily enough, that's where I started my career as well. I, I, my, I began teaching car mechanics, bakers and people like that and managing quite a disorderly, not terribly scholarly group of people has helped me a lot. It gave me the ability to, to work with executives in the classroom, I think. So you have to catch their attention, gain their respect, and hold it for, in difficult circumstances for a reasonable amount of time. So uh, my time in further education, teaching car mechanics and so on and so forth, um, was helpful to me too. Interesting. Um, yeah, here in the U.S., I think that we call it an associate's degree usually when, um, or more. Just would, I'm not even sure that, or community college, something like that. College, exactly. exactly. People going to baking in those days, car mechanics. It might be computer programming now. I don't know, computers, something like that. So, um, 
I noticed on your CV it said when you did go to university, so you went to the University of Oxford and studied history, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's Keith Power's influence, yeah. And, was, and, and when you were doing that experience, is, is that something you, were you thinking of being a history teacher or what led you into that and during that? Oh no, I slipped back to the back of the class again and mucked around for three years. So there's no way I'm going to become a history academic. Um, I, I did a lot of other stuff. Uh, journalism and politics and a bit of sports and things like that but I didn't do a lot of work um, so yeah yeah that was a bit bad um, I possibly what this is reinforcing I hadn't thought of this as a theme how, how important it is to respect your teachers mm -hmm. um, and at various stages I've had teachers I've respected and admired a lot and they've inspired me to do you know the work I you know I was supposed to do but it, I didn't have that, it was hard. And, and so after you finished your, your bachelor's degree in, in history, I'm curious, you know, we, we say that when, when we're 10 years old, no one says, when I grow up, I'm going to be a strategic management professor, right? And so from that point in, in, in your um, younger days, what led you to actually go to a doctoral program? So take us from, your time at Oxford doing a history degree to actually entering Manchester for a PhD program? Well, I did a, a bit of work in further education. I did an MBA because, as I mentioned, interested in business. And then uh, Ray Loveridge, a name not many people will know, but he only retired as an emeritus sort of associate fellow of some sort from Said Business School uh, a year or two ago. Um, he inspired me and having learnt history and been frustrated by history, this is history 40 odd years ago, I was basically, you know, one damn thing after another type history. Um, I had my first exposure to social science and Ray was tremendous in that respect and I did my dissertation in those days, MBAs quite substantial dissertations, quite a traditional degree. And um, I really got into it and I thought I should do a PhD. Um, also, nobody else would hire me, so that was... <laughs> so then did you go directly from the MBA into the... To Manchester Business School, yeah. Okay. And when yeah. you did, I when you went to Manchester, what group or department was it? I actually couldn't see on the CV you know, was it called management? Was it called, I assume it probably wasn't called strategy then. There's a theme emerging. Um, I started with one supervisor, moved to another supervisor, and finally ended up with a third supervisor. Uh, that's director or whatever. And it, it was a very much more personal relationship in the UK these days. You didn't have committees. Um, so I, I did have some problems finding something I actually could work with and could work with me and I ended up with a guy called Richard Whitley who's retired not so long ago he's done work on sociology of knowledge and business systems comparative business systems and he was inspiring for me he was um, very tough um, not very welcoming and warm in many ways but he 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 did something which I've always promised my PhD well promised to myself I do for my PhD students but never really done. If I submitted something by the next day, he would have a couple of page 
pages are typed out. He had, of course, a secretary to whom he would dictate it all. Not my privilege, but those are the days. Um, and two pages of comments, detailed comments, at least within a day, uh, faultlessly. And that was very motivating because he set a very high standard for himself as a supervisor and therefore one felt obliged to set a high standard for him. I see. And, and what were your interests in, in your dissertation? Was it anything that continued from your MBA or was it uh, continuing your work like new work that you discovered with your advisor? Well, the MBA I've been doing work in Birmingham on cooperatives, which were then a way of managing industrial decline in Birmingham. And at Manchester, it was another big industrial city in the north, uh, which was suffering then a radical industrial decline. This was the time of, of Thatcherism and so on and so forth. And so I was interested in why large firms made their choices. I worked even with a, a small trade union group who would provide information for strategy analysis for their, um, you know, if they, if they had a plant or they had a, a firm which was closing down and making big redundancies, I'd provide a bit of advice from the sidelines. So I was interested in um, why firms do what they do. If a trade union was to be able to challenge them, there had to be some sense of choice. Um, I'd always been inspired as, not that I was ever taught E.P. Thompson, e. Thompson's a, a famous historian, um, that was definitely not part of the Oxford curriculum, he was a bit of a radical, but he always had the sense of agency, and I was interested in the way in which firms could make choices, and if they were making choices rather than there were alternatives, and that was important to be able to offer trade unionists and say, well, it doesn't have to be this way. You could argue that, see whether they buy this. At least you don't have to accept everything is inevitable. And that, that may have been at the margins slightly helpful to them. And so my thesis was on choice during recessions, um, strategic choices by firms in recessions. And it was sociologically inspired, partly because Richard Whitley was a sociologist and um, so I was interested in, in different um, themes of ethnicity, gender, and so on and so forth, which would influence the kinds of choices medium-sized businesses were making during the recession. So mostly fairly in-depth case studies. I'm thinking how, how um, appropriate that is now, right now as well, right? When yeah, I'm afraid so. Um, yeah. Yeah, I tell my son that uh, he's just changing jobs. Well, that's brave. I remember there's three million unemployed in the United Kingdom. There's probably going to be three million unemployed next year. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, it's history, unfortunately, is repeating itself in some ways. So, um, and and then from that, so you said it was mostly with medium medium sized firms. But this, I thought something was curious that you said. You said that um, organizations make these choices. And this brings me a little bit to the idea of strategy as practice, um, because you know, you're very much known for creating some of the, the organizations that we have that are focused on this, where you talk about organizations not having strategy, but it's people really doing strategy. Could you tell us more about kind of what was the catalyst that led to this focus moving from organizations to people? Well, there's some consistency there because the decision makers during a recession are people and several of them were family firms, several of them were Jewish family firms, partly because of the two sectors I chose, which was 
purely accidental. And there are ways in which they made their decisions and ran their businesses, which were kind of characteristic and very different to some of their rivals, which were professional managed firms. So I was interested in notions of patriarchy, which is one of the ways these family firms would run them themselves. I was interested in the, the Jewish uh, heritage and how that influenced their style and their choices and sense, senses of responsibility. So that was interesting. So my thesis was sociologically um, informed. And so I spent some time in France. I attended a series of lectures given by Pierre Bourdieu. I was interested in, in fact, I wrote an article on Giddens and management way back in 1992, Journal of Management Studies. No, one in 1988, actually, gosh, um, on the Roger Federer of management scholarship. Um, so, uh, so, you know, so I was interested in people in strategy and I not really interested in it from a psychologically psychological point of view, more interested in it sociologically because notions of patriarchy and class and ownership and, and ethnicity had influenced my earlier work. And it, then having exposure to Giddens, exposure to Bourdieu, I organized a conference with, Bourdieu, uh, with Giddens at some point in the 1990s, uh, led me to think of strategy as a kind of work with workers and tools, just like any other activity. It sounds like it's very much as anything else. Yeah, it's interesting because it sounds like it, it almost builds off of what you mentioned earlier, working with people learning technical skills and again, applying the tools to something that they're that they're creating or, or we're building. Yeah, well, that, that might be true as somebody who can't cook very well and certainly can't fix a car. I have a lot of respect for people with those skills. But yes, we have tools and strategy. Um, we have workers, whether we call them strategy consultants or chief strategy officers or chief executives, they work with tools. And if we can apply that work lens, again, Ray Loveridge, I mentioned earlier, he's a sociologist of work. Um, so I knew that literature indirectly at least. And so I was exposed to that. And what was it like, Richard? You know, I, I take these interest groups that now exist almost for granted. And I think many of us on the call who are also junior scholars don't realize the history of, of this, that it didn't exist at some point in time, right? I mean, 2003 was when I believe the, the interest group was created at SMS, right, for strategy practice. Um, yeah. And so what, I'm just curious as, as someone in the field who's really trying to draw our attention to this um, what was the feedback like and what was the challenge like for you to create these interest groups well I, I think I have to credit Julia Balligan at uh, Liverpool for a great deal of the work so um, I was working with Jerry Johnson and the strategist practice staff and we had Julia was hardly described as a junior scholar now she's a dean of Liverpool. So, but anyway, um, Julia had been Jerry's PhD student. I examined her PhD, I think, I can't remember now. Yes, I think I did, um, or something I examined of hers. And, um, but Julia was really keen on creating this interest group. Jerry and I were, yeah, yeah, we'll help you. And, and, and other people like Paul, Paula Jaskowski, I think was involved at that point, David Seidel as well. 
Personally, I never thought Julia would pull it off, but she had fantastic organizing abilities, absolute determination. I, probably she's a dean in the making already. Um, so she pulled it off. Um, you know, Jerry, David, maybe Paula and, and I sort of, we, we, we followed in her wake and she told us to do things and we did things. And it was chance, I think. There hadn't been a, a new division or a new interest group for some period of time. I think the Academy was pleased to accept it. There were a lot of Europeans, especially at that time, um, people from Australasia and Asia involved in strategies practice. Academy was keen to internationalize. I think the BPS division, as it was at that time, either had a moment of forgetfulness about the potential rivalry or of generosity. So um, it happened. That's, that's fantastic. It was um, the person, Julia Balligan was the person who really gave the organizing drive to it. That's, that's wonderful to hear the history because I think many of us don't, don't know it. Um, at the time, did, I'm curious, at SMS, did strategy process, did that interest group already exist or did strategy practice come first? Do you no, strategy process did exist. Um, I think we probably draw the boundaries less strongly now than we did then, but I still would draw boundaries um, between the two. Um, the strategy process group was very different to the SMS. I was more involved in the creation of the SMS interest group. Um, and Dan Shendell, who then ran it, um, well, I'd done something else for Dan and I think he felt obliged to do, to give me a favor back or something like that. And um, Bob DeWitt, who was, is a strategy consultant, but also academic at Erasmus was involved in that as well. Um, so that, that worked fine. Again, I think it was, we'll tolerate these guys on the margins and we'll see what happens. It, it, it's, it's kept going, so that's good. And, and how do you distinguish, I think this is useful to hear from, from your own words, um, the realm of strategy process versus that of strategy practice? Well, very simply, we went back to, and there are lots of ways of thinking about this, but a simple way of thinking about this is to go back to the definition you talked about for the interest group, which is strategy is about something that, Strategy as practice is about something people do. Um, so the people and the practices are central. Whereas in the process view, I think organizations have processes and the focus is more organizational. The people um, are, are much less attached to particular organizations. So you think of strategy consultants and the practices that we use, whether they're strategy retreats, away days, strategy tools such as five forces or whatever, or even Zoom and things like that, that they are not organizational. So there's a decentering of the organization and the strategy as practice way of thinking, thinking about practitioners, thinking about their tools, then the organization rather than the other way around. Okay, that's, that's great. I, I, I always think it's interesting to hear how each academic kind of portrays the boundaries in, in the field that we study. Because if we look at SMS, we have, I think, 11 or 12 interest groups, you know, but many of our, our interests span multiple ones of those. So it's, it's great to hear how you think about process and practice. That makes a, a yeah. lot of sense to me. 
Um, so I would, I would love to hear, you know, you've, you've given so much to the field in your research and now we're talking about service that you've done. What would your advice be to junior scholars about service? And then I'm going to turn the questions to, to research. But since we're talking about SMS and, and AOM, um, how much should they do as junior scholars or not? And, and what, do you, what is your advice? Uh, it's tough um, to give advice. I always suspect the advice given by one generation to another. It's a bit like generals fighting the last war. Um, so I think what is helpful is to start by reviewing, start by reviewing for conferences. Uh, as you review, you um, can get uh, a sense of what works and what doesn't. You can, uh, which will translate into your own work. You may get a sense of what's hot, what's coming up through the literature and what isn't. You'll be able to observe the other reviews quite carefully and learn from them. Uh, one trick I've noticed some people do with a great deal of success is to gain yourself a little bit of tolerance, do some really fantastic reviews. And for conference reviewing, it's not very hard to do better than the average. And you might get yourself a prize and then you get on a stage and people notice you. So that, that's good. So being involved in conferences, both from a altruistic, but also from a um, ecocentric point of view is a good thing. You can help the community, but you can also raise your profile. I'd also say, um, one of the things that I didn't realize, realize early on, and this might sound self-serving, but um, it isn't because I have got enough projects on at the moment and I have got enough colleagues, is there are a lot of busy senior academics who, but who are quite open to working with other junior scholars. Um, now, the, the relationship won't be equal. You'll, you'll end up doing 80% of the work but that extra 20% that the senior scholar gives, it may not seem like much, is all that it takes or what it takes to translate an average piece of work, which might go into an average journal, into something which might do better. So I think to a certain extent, you have to, to live with the busy, distracted agendas of senior scholars sometimes to, to ride on their coattails a bit and, and to take a little bit of their expertise and gain access to their contacts and networks. I wouldn't do it always, I didn't do it by any means early on in my career, but that again is fighting the last war. I think nowadays it is quite helpful to have built quite a few alliances and to tolerate the real frustrations of working with so-called senior scholars because they, they do have a little, that little bit of touch of magic which can sometimes transform a paper into something which is going to be publishable. Samina, what do you think? Oh no, this is an interview of Richard Whittington. Not well, no, 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 but, but you, you do come from the European or, or, or now, you know, so, uh, I come from the European tradition. I, I sort of slightly distrust that perspective if I was to generalize it more widely. So, I, I, I'm curious, actually, you, because you mentioned this, and, and I think I, I think the idea of reviewing. I mean, I, I do editorial work too. is a is a great suggestion for everyone to be involved. I also think of it as giving back. You know, it's the system. The system would break down if we didn't review as well as submitting. It's very tough to ask young scholars to give back. It's it's our generation or my generation, especially, should be doing the giving back. But. Sure. 
if, if you're giving you as a young scholar or early stage scholar you're also getting something back sorry samina i interrupted no no absolutely and well you mentioned something in in the last just few moments you said a, a european kind of perspective do you do you see um in your view that things or how do you compare or contrast let's say maybe more us-based scholarship or training to that of european because you know we have we've had a few european scholars in this meet the scholar session and i would love to hear your perspective on that because should does it differ should it differ um what should young junior scholars in europe versus let's say us or in asia be aware of in their careers if they're in europe uh, well, there's a different intellectual tradition in Europe. I think originally there was a, a, a greater willingness to go back to the, the dis disciplines, particularly into sociology amongst certain people. That's what I noticed, but that might reflect my trajectory in particular. Um, and I think there's value in that. Uh, but the differences have been exaggerated, or at least they've been reduced, shall we say. Uh, we can easily exaggerate the differences, and the differences are are falling. I hope, and I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this, especially for those people from the Asia, Asian cultures, I hope we can all maintain something distinctive. Whether in particular, I think the French tradition is still quite distinctive, the German tradition is still quite distinctive. Um, so I work with David, David Seidel, you know, he's just happy to draw upon, I don't know, Nicholas Luhmann or some, somebody like that. He's quite exotic and that inspires his work. I, I used to find Giddens, I still do actually, Roy Bascar or Pierre Bourdieu inspirational in a way which has helped me do slightly different things to what I might have done otherwise. So in Asia, I, I simply speak of in, out of ignorance. I don't know what the, the, the indigenous traditions would be. But it would be a shame if they were all suppressed and it all became one standard because a lot of innovation mm -hmm. i think does come from the margins and it's you know schumpeter says you know innovation is bringing two old things together in a new combination if we can bring some of the some of the rigorous training of the american system together with some of the uh, slightly out-of-the-box thinking, which comes from, I, for me, sociology, not out-of-the-box, beyond, anyway, beyond the mainstream thinking of sociology or whatever, that's great. I mean, I'm, at the moment, I'm writing a paper and I'm finding myself, you know, um, Ulrich Beck, an uh, obscure German sociologist, is inspiring me in this. Now, that's great. That's great. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it hasn't I can, been published, but let's not all become homogenous, right? That's the yeah, thing. exactly. Research is, is exploring deeply and doing different things, right? So, mm. but um, it's not easy to do that. It's not at all easy to do that. Um, but I think better work comes out of it. Well, so so speaking of getting work done, so you have over sixty publications, and I'm sure. We're all wondering, well, I, I'm going to speak on behalf of everyone, which is two questions. So one is, how are you so productive? And, and then the second is if you could give us an example of a paper that either you struggled with or faced some challenges with in the publication process. So maybe we can start with 
your productivity? Are there any tips that you can give us on, on how you stay so productive? You've got to care about it. You've got to think it's important as a crazy, crazy thing to be doing um, over, I, I just did realize, I think my first publication was in 1984. It's a crazy thing to, journal publication is a crazy thing to keep doing. Um, but it's kind of fun and keeps your mind fresh and you meet lots of people. Um, that's nice too. Um, and so it's a good combination of the sort of rather solitary with the social. Um, so I, and it's intellectually stimulating. It's about something important. What firms do is really important. So um, if you think of Alphabet or Facebook or Alibaba or whoever, those are really, what the, their decisions make a difference to the world. So I think what we do is important and that helps keep me going. So if I wasn't motivated, it's no longer obviously getting tenure or getting a promotion or something like that. It's about believing that what you're doing is important. Um, and that belief, even if it's a delusion, has to be the motivator. And that helps helps productivity because you're you keep working on the project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely, yeah. you have to love. love well, I mean, I have lots of bad work habits. I can tell you a lot more about my bad work habits than my good work habits. But... Okay, tell us one bad habit because we're being candid on these interviews. The Financial Times. Oh, do you get lost in it? Like you could just. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I know that. Why is that a bad habit? Well, it's not wholly a bad. I mean, I've got worse habits, but I'm not going to share them with you. Um, <laughs> so, but the Financial Times is, well, it's not entirely a bad habit. There's some great writers there. And I, and I believe business is important. So if you're not reading what's going on in the contemporary world, then you're going to be missing out a lot of stuff. So, no, the Financial Times is not wholly a bad habit, but it's like the, the job interview asks you, what's your weakness? I respond, ambition. Yeah, it's my <laughs> bad habit, Financial Times. And, and can you give us an example, Richard? Because, um, you know, I, I find it, I think something that's funny is I've heard junior scholars often look at the CVs and the output of, of senior scholars and like, wow, you know, they look everything they've done and I think sometimes they don't realize the struggles or challenges that you faced when you were whether it be now or when you were a junior scholar so can you give us an example of any project that had any challenges for you to overcome okay so first of all I've been incredibly lucky yeah so it was tough in the 80s getting a job. It was very tough. Um, but I, you know, I don't know, white male, privately educated, Oxford degree. Okay, so I roughed it up slightly at various times, but not really. It's not been hard, hard. So I'm lucky. I'm working in my own language, you know. It's, yeah, it's, I see lots of people struggle with much tougher circumstances than I do. Yeah, so first of all, it's not really been hard work. Otherwise, I'd have probably stopped. Yeah, and, and, and I've been motivated and enjoyed it. So, so I'm lucky. 
challenges. Okay, I can tell you about a challenge. Uh, recently, you mentioned that book I published. I could not publish anything from it in a journal. They refused it. One or two other journals refused it. I thought it was really important. How did strategy as a discipline, as, as a, sorry, as a practice, arrive at where it is? Yeah, there's patterns which I ident identify. SMJ was not interested in the slightest. It's in history. Um, and that's not of the academic history, this is the, the practice history. And I couldn't formulate a way of pitching it to a journal. I think I could now, but it took me a long time. I had so much data, I had so many, I worked on it for so long, 10 years roughly, that I just couldn't get my head straight round it. I know now I could have done it, perhaps. Um, so I did it as a book. And actually I'm kind of happy, content with that at least. Well, so that was my question. In hindsight, um, do you think it's better packaged as a book versus as multiple journal articles? Was that a decision you were making at some point in time? I would not have given up if I was looking for tenure. I, well, one, I wouldn't have done the project, but two, I, um, I would have kept going for the journals. So I do recommend to scholars at a different stage of career um, I wrote my thesis as a book. I would never recommend that, or I would be very, very cautious in supporting that amongst PhD students now. Yeah, now for junior scholars. Categorical, but uh, so don't do what I did. Um, again, it's a generational thing. The labour market's changed. It's changing again. Uh, we'll see how uh, how it works, and it's a very tough labour market. Um, and I think it will make thing about structural incentive changes the present crisis um, which will have repercussions for a very long time but at the moment I'm particularly cautious about giving advice because I just don't know what the market's going to be like um, but yeah so doing a book I've done books I quite enjoy writing books maybe may reflect my first degree in history it's not that hard I used to churn out two essays a week that was the Oxford way writing has never been difficult for me Wow, that is a gift. I, I just, I'm going to quote you when you said, it's not hard. I'm like, wow, I have yet to write a book. And that's, to me, it seems daunting. <laughs> well, yeah. It's a, it's a, I mean, there's a guy I have enormous respect for, uh, most of you will recognize, Martin Kilder. And his, uh, how many ASQ articles, AMJ articles, AMR, longer than my arm, I can't count. Probably he can't anymore. But he said writing a book, he wants, how do I, how could you do that? That's just another skill. Mm. I mean, well, done well, I'm, I'm glad you have that skill. So I'm glad some of us have it. Some of us don't though, clearly. Um, let, me, let me ask you something about PhD students because you mentioned, um, you gave some of advice about what they could learn from working with a senior scholar and perhaps writing books is not what they should focus on in their, when they're junior scholars and doctoral students. You have had many doctoral students and I've co-authored with one of them, Stefan. Oh, Stefan, yeah. I'm curious, what, what is your way of working with doctoral students? Um, do they come to you with an idea? Do they start working with you on a project? What's, what's your kind of process and routines working with them? It varies very widely, and this reflects perhaps the UK tradition, which has strengths and weaknesses. Um, and it's changed over time. So sometimes 
it'll be a joint project. Lo Stefan's history was a little bit more complicated because he changed supervisor. Um, Stefan Giro, this is, he and I, we, we basically said, well, let's work on this project together. It'll be your thesis. You'll ultimately have to write that, but then we'll work together on the journal articles. I think nowadays that's a good way of working, but I don't do that with all my uh, PhD students. We call them DPhil students, doctors. So not all of my PhD students, but you know, some ideas are, Duncan Angwin was completely independent, um, but I've worked with him since. I'm his dean of another business school, Nottingham Business School now. So, um, so it'll vary. And Duncan's had success in his particular career, which is more independent of my supervision, um, which is fine. Uh, so, and I write a textbook with him now, so that's great. Uh, so I think there's a variety, but uh, on the whole, I would advise people to be, and I think that's the normal North American model, certainly, and probably even so, more so in continent, parts of continental Europe. Uh, it's a joint project. Um, take what you can, and your supervisor will probably give you more if you, you know, you're going to be co-author. So that's a reasonable exchange. Now, places like Oxford, I'm curious, I remember when, when I did my PhD, it was one large dissertation. And I've noticed this trend now where folks do these three chapter dissertations. What is it at Oxford? You can do either. Actually, this causes a little bit of complexity because the choice of either means that uh, every, super, every student is always looking over their shoulder saying, oh, I chose the pa three paper route. I think I should have done the, uh, and it's a difficult, Thing to manage. Um, I, the grass I, is always greener on the other. Still favour the monograph or single integrated piece of work, but people take different views. And I'm certainly in, in supervising. I, I I've had both quite often, and uh, I don't have a strong view. Ultimately, it's the students. Students making a fantastically large bet. Mm. Um, and they could have believed in that bet. Yeah. So you can't be, well, you can reduce the scale of the bet by reducing the risk, but you also re reduce the payoff, I think, uh, by saying, do it my way. But then you, you probably will find it difficult to develop an independent voice later. So it's, it's difficult. Uh, I, I think one should allow a little bit of latitude even if, like in all bets, you know, it's, it's highly risky and you're making a bet at the beginning of the process when you know least about the odds and what's at, what's at stake. So it's a difficult thing to do, but um, you've got to believe in what you're doing. Um, otherwise, you're spending five or years or longer. I always ask my beginning PhD students, so, so this is hot now. What do you think is going to be hot in 10 years time? Oh, I have no idea. Well, that's what you're betting now. What advice, Richard, would you give to junior scholars? I'm thinking, you know, you've probably mentored many. Um, you know, some are dealing with this, the tenure clock, and as they're approaching, you've probably evaluated many promotion cases, both at Oxford, but I'm thinking of outside of Oxford when, when you're asked to, to review promotions. Um, what, what advice would you give to them as, as these junior scholars are creating their pipelines? Um, what are you looking for when you evaluate them or whether they should receive tenure? Well, just speaking to someone not in the 
sorry, business school, but somewhere else were. And I said, this person had quite diverse and good publications, but diverse. Uh, so I said, well, what's your brand? And in fact, this person came from another discipline, not originally. And, and he said, well, because of this, I'm a bit diffuse. And I said, well, actually, can't you say because of this, you have a coherence? And can you mould it in the positive rather than the negative? So to establish some brand, some voice, something you're known for um, is important. So, and that, of course, is part of the risk as you work with senior scholars, you might get pulled in different directions. So to try and knit together something coherent of your own is important. Um, really, it can be quite difficult to do. And in that respect, the UK tradition of being rather more independent, self-standing junior scholar than some traditions might be an advantage. It, it's more wasteful in that more people fall by the wayside, but those people who do somehow make their way through may have that stronger independent voice. But I don't feel strongly about that. I, I think in the end it's down to the ambition, the, the drive of the individual, even if they're working with other senior scholars, if they have a, some sort of vision of themselves, what they want to be, what they want to be known for, I think they can make their way through. All right, that's it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, someone wants, you know, you mentioned branding oneself. Someone said to me, you know, Samina, what's your footprint? I'm like, oh, what's my footprint? <laughs> so, I know what your footprint is. Yeah, yeah, find your footprint. So I think, I think that's, that's great. Um, so I'm going to, you know, turn it to, to Nell, who's also going to maybe ask a few questions. Um, we've received a few in the registration um, and also questions that Nell may have before we, we take a snapshot and turn it over to, to others. So Nell, do you want to ask a few sure. questions? Before we turn? Yeah, thank you, Samina. And thank you, Richard. This has been really enjoyable for me. Um, I was wondering about two things. Things. So one, obviously, you've been exposed to teaching at an early stage uh, in your life and in your career. And I was curious if you've seen some sort of patterns of change in what students expect and what works in the classroom and what doesn't work and sort of any insights about what students expect out of their education uh, now as opposed to in the 1980s, 1990s. Because I hear a lot of uh, complaints from some of my older colleagues, but I don't have the same perspective. So I'm just wondering if uh, there's, there's insights there that, that you can share with us. Uh, have I seen much Well, do you think students are pretty much the same? It's, uh, it's us uh, who's changing. <laughs> well, uh, I know when I was an undergraduate and I was doing my first degree, there's a lot of idle students. I think there are fewer now. I think students by and large are better organized, better motivated, and so on and so forth. Perhaps they may expect more of us, and possibly there's a little bit too much hand-holding, but I actually think the standards have improved very considerably. Um, I'm maybe my, measuring myself, again, measuring students against my own low standard when I was about 20. Uh, but, um, so there's one thing which hasn't changed, I think. And as students want to see that you like, respect, and want to be with them. If you don't want to be in the class with them, if you somehow communicate that, 
they won't forgive you. And so some of the people I see, I've seen over my career, some really who often come in, so a bit casual, a bit un, un, unprepared, but light up as soon as they go into the classroom. That energy, that commitment is what will allow students to forgive nearly anything. If you're interested, they're going to be interested. So that doesn't seem to me to have changed. And I, when I started my career in further education, community colleges, you know, I was dealing with people who would, um, you know, routinely as I came into the class, they would have something balancing on the door. So it would fall on me in the blackboard. We used to have revolving black doors. They'd jam it up. They would, lots of tricks. Those. This was a city just out in the Midlands, so all the Asian students will be on one side and the white students on the other side. It was, you know, but if you could go in the class wanting to be there, or appearing to want to be there, then by and large things would go okay. That hasn't changed. Did you have a chance to teach during the last few months? Did you find that it was hard to sort of convey this energy? online or do you think students are perceptive all the same yeah i've, I've I had two experiences i had to teach this was quite hard a four-day executive course which suddenly got transferred online um thankfully i think everyone was at that point fairly tolerant of the odd glitch which had happened i had four screens operating i four screens is essential for that kind of teaching i can go into the mechanics of that you may discover this for yourself um again it was energy which kept going I, after those four days i was as limp as a lettuce leaf but uh, there's a lot of adrenaline going around for everybody at that point it was probably late april early may um and there's another course i did about that time as well but i think again it's energy you can communicate it uh, and people will appreciate it you need to have that the light switched on. I don't know. What's your experience been now? Well, we'll come back to me later. But this was useful, and at least some of it, I think, explains my interactions with my colleagues, who essentially echo that the students expect a lot more. But I think, as you mentioned, it's probably a mix of standards in general rising. Yeah. rather than the students necessarily demanding more than what's fair. They're just used to getting better teaching throughout and when they come to university, it's a continuation of that. Um, my, my sense is largely students are students, young people don't seem that different to me than what I remember growing up in India. But anyhow, yeah. uh, my second question is more about your sense of PhD candidates. Uh, so as I see today, the, the students applying for PhDs, you know, some of them already have research experience. Um, some might even have a paper under review at a management journal. And that's a level of preparation that even 10 years ago was very uncommon. Um, and it was quite normal to see students from different disciplines applying to management uh, business PhD programs because you know, these PhD programs by and large didn't really exist 20, 30 years ago. So for instance, many of my colleagues have uh, PhDs in, in other disciplines. 
what's your sense behind this sort of rise of these really well-prepared PhD students? And is there something that they might be giving up in being so focused uh, on, uh, on business right from the get-go that they might actually not help them in the longer term of uh, becoming an academic? So, so you mean these are graduating PhD students? No, no, candidates applying candidates, to PhD programs. Candidates yeah. with journal articles. Yeah, and papers under Well, you're lucky. I haven't had, well, not, not good journal articles, but I haven't had many. But okay. um, I always think well, there's a wonderful thing about business schools and an underappreciated thing about business schools. Business schools are mini universities. They have so many disciplines and so many of the faculty and the students themselves, especially obviously in the MBAs, will have come from quite unrelated disciplines whether it's physics or fine art or something like that we are many universities and that's great uh, that makes them much more intellectually stimulating than many other departments so i don't think it's entirely a disadvantage to come up through the business school route and to have prepared through business schools and not to work in another discipline Myself, by acquisition, uh, I learned sociology, um, but I learned that in a business school. I just spent a lot of time reading the greats and, and they're not so great. Um, and you can compensate. So if you come up through a business school, I think probably the important thing is to um, look out to other disciplines um, and be ready to say, well, I'm in a business school, but I'm an economist, a sociologist, a psychologist as well. And you can probably pick up the essentials. I mean, let's, let, you know, an undergraduate degree is not a great training in anything except being a student. So you can catch up in nearly any discipline. Um, so uh, I don't think it's a bad thing if people come through business schools entirely. Great. Did I answer your question? Yeah, 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 you did, you did. And I guess I assume this trend of hyper-focused already in the publication pipeline, um, PhD, non-PhD, you know, I guess rising PhD students was, was universal and maybe okay. not as universal as Very well. Um, so I think this is a good time to take a quick break and uh, we'll, uh, turn on our cameras for our pictures and then Looks like we already have a question from Georgina that we'll get to. All right. So for our screenshot, folks, you know, we put post this on our Twitter feed and you know, it's our, our branding and marketing. You know, speaking of branding. So Nell, you're a dark shadow. Oh, that's yes, better. Yes, okay. All I'm right, trying so. to uh, get in the light. So what I'll do is I'll count to three and everyone can look at, so everyone's looking at the same spot. All right. So I'll count to three and then we'll say cheese. All right. So if you could show your video, if you're comfortable. All right, one, two, three, cheese. Cheese. All right, I think I got a good picture. Okay, super. So we, we have a question um, from Georgina. Georgina, would you like to ask your question to Richard? Uh, sure, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for the sharing and the organization. So I have a specific question on your micro strategy topics. Can you share more about your journey in convincing the academic audience that micro-strategy matters, the phenomenon matters, and have you went through any 
uh, debates about your argument. Thank you. Yeah, so I mean, you framed it in an interesting way. So actually, there was a big debate in the early days of the strategy as practice um, group, such as it is. So a important um, issue for that group was the journal management studies special issue that I co-edited with Jerry Johnson and Nath Melin. It was on micro strategizing. And in many ways that set a, a mark on the field that strategies practice was about the micro level. Um, I've never believed that actually. And the reason why that title um, got on the special issue in the end was because I missed a plane and I wasn't at the meeting where it was determined. Um, so that was all my fault. I believe that strategies practice is, is importantly about the micro level, but it should never be separate from the macro level. So it is important to look at the work people do, to go back to that definition, when they do strategy, what kind of work and who the people are, that's micro. But there's a macro element in that they're drawing upon practices which are very common across many, many organisations. I mentioned strategy retreats, technologies such as Zoom or Excel, um, all sorts of things like that, which are not just micro. So there has always been a bit of a debate internally within strategies practices, how much is it about micro? How much is it also about the macro? Insofar as that debate is still live, I would put myself on the, it's also macro, not just micro. But Georgina, does that make sense to you? Yeah. Are you sure? Um, I'm also thinking about the linkage between micro and macro and now the micro foundation theory. Okay, so the micro foundations theory, I have two colleagues, one to a greater or lesser extent are quite closely associated with it. Teppo Felin, who's very much associated with it, and um, Thomas Powell. Um, so I think the difference for the micro foundations is they're more psychological. And we in strategies practice might be more sociological and that seems to me to lend itself towards that more macro perspective, the sociological perspective. Where, and here's a theme which I, nobody has pursued but I've often tried to push is, you know, is strategy work the same across international boundaries? Is the strategy work done the same in an Indian, in an African or a Chinese or an American or a British firm? Well, actually, it goes right back to my original PhD days. I found these Jewish businesses were doing things very differently to the other businesses. So I'd see that as not a, a psychological thing. I used to say it's something to do with the culture of a particular generation of Jewish business people who originally come from Germany and then created businesses in the UK in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s um, and reached a certain stage of their lives, which led, led them to be behave in a particular common way, not their psychology, but their cultural background. And similarly, I think the institutional context, say in China or India or America, they're all very different. Institutional in the broadest sense, and I think that leads to different ways of doing strategy. If you're in a semi-state planning system, that's different. If you're in a system where there's a lot of state ownership, that's going to make things different. Um, 
So that, that's both that's sociological rather than the micro foundations tradition, psychological. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Georgina. Bridget, uh, Nell, Nell had a question too. Nell, I'll let you ask. Yeah, I'm sorry because I feel like I spend half my time these days talking about how to get papers published and I find myself guilty of this horrible strategizing that all of us junior scholars do. Uh, but I've just submitted my tenure package, so hopefully these conversations will uh, end at least in the short term. Uh, but uh, I was, you know, you, you've been an associate editor at SMJ and at Long Range Planning. Um, and I know that uh, you must have some insights, we won't call it advice, uh, that you must have seen through this experience about, A, how to decide how to target different papers to different journals and sort of any other general feedback on decoding reviewer comments and addressing the review process uh, as a junior scholar. Um, because I think that's something that your senior colleagues can really help with. But ultimately, I hope there's something to learn, but although I still can't say if I have learned anything, so. So, me too. I've seen such diversity of experience and such diversity. No, no, this, this you can't say that. <laughs> it's very hard. But the only thing I would say is be relentless. So every comment that the referees give you is a chance for you to nail it. So just either say very clearly, this is what I've done and I've changed it because of your suggestion and this makes sense, or I've chosen not to do exactly what you said, but this is the reason why just relentlessly pursue and push. It may not work. Um, editors are much less brave than they should be. I understand why. Um, but it's just that relentlessness. Now that putting together a package nowadays is it's just sheer grinding labor at times, isn't it? Um, and I think it's that belief, I hope, and I, I think most people do, believe, you know, you believe that what you're doing collectively is an important body of work. And it's more about, it's not just about you, but you've got a mortgage to pay, you've got children to raise, you've got lots of material things on your mind. You've got to get this, but you've got to believe in it for, for a little bit higher reason than paying the mortgage and paying children's school fees. So just keep going. You know, it's that commitment relentless energy, drive, determination. I, I, so, Georgina, going back to the psychology, I will accept psychology here. You have to be slightly crazy to want to do it, but the payoff is wonderful. Um, it's a great job to have. That's true. No other job where we get paid to ask the questions we want to, right? Yeah, more or less, exactly. Well, I think part of Nell's question that I saw actually written that, that I don't know if she said explicitly, Richard, but how do you think of which paper you write, which journal to send it to? It's kind of that matching process because there's this fear that I think we all have that once you send it, if it wasn't the right fit, then also you've burnt that bridge, so to speak. You can't resend it and fix it up to get it right the second time around. So how do you identify which journal you think is most appropriate for particular papers? Uh, it's very hard um, and it's partly which journal is 
talking most about the topic that you're addressing. Uh, most papers will bear re-engineering and redirecting to another journal. Even an equivalent, you know, SMJ, I failed an SMJ, we'll send it to Organisation Science or Organisation Science will send it to AMJ. There's, there's the ability to recraft things. So I'm working with somebody on a paper, I, I won't mention either the paper or the person, um, who's actually said we will go for AMJ and this person doesn't have very good reasons at all, just said let's do it. Are you sure? This person with a lot of experience said, yeah, let's do it. Why? I just want to do this one here. <laughs> Didn't give any reason, so we're going along for the ride and we'll for sure we'll get great feedback. So it's not a disaster. For me, none of these things are a disaster. For you, Nell, it is. So I would not be quite as perverse as this particular co-author has been and saying, it's AMJ, we're just doing it. And this person doesn't need another AMJ, he just wants to do it. All right, so not now, but put yourself maybe 15 years earlier. When you got a rejection, what did you do? What was your next step? Well, in those days, you used to get, not 15 years, maybe 20 years ago, you get it in your pigeonhole by a letter. <laughs> so I know you can't believe that. Um, so then you'd put the letter somewhere on the corner of your desk and forget about it for a few days. Don't forget, the UK was not a very competitive system. It still isn't a very, very competitive system. So you could afford to have the odd reject. Uh, I used to more or less shrug my shoulders. Um, uh, so it wouldn't be the case now, I think, if I was looking for tenure now, uh, mm -hmm. I'd be much more concerned. I, again, I think it's relentlessness, and that's what impresses me about some of my junior colleagues. They do just keep going, and they roll with the punches. You know, there are going to be lots of punches you have to roll with, and just keep going. And remember the goal, uh, pay your rent, feed your children, and get a great career. Yeah, my, my, my husband once said that, you know, it's the only profession where you just have to learn better at how to take criticism, you know, repeatedly, because that's what we yeah. do. Right? You know, imagine if you're a salesperson. Yeah, in fact, it's not a bad analogy. Salespeople spend most of their days getting rejected. True, true. And I played tennis with a guy who's a salesperson, a salesman, and he just, he loves it. He, he says, it's worth it for the buzz of getting one sale. You know, you get a hundred. So think of ourselves as telephone salespeople and then maybe we'll get less, less precious, harder, but more hard skinned. And that, that's what salespeople keep doing. They keep on doing it. That relentlessness is the salesperson's uh, quality. So we have a few fun questions we like to ask. Oh, wait, but I see there's another question from Nina. Let me ask, let me let, um, Nina, why don't you unmute yourself and ask your question before we get to our fun questions that we ask each of our scholars. All right, thanks, Samina. Um, hi, Richard. Um, thanks hi, for uh, taking the, your time with us today. Uh, my question is a, more about um, the environment at Oxford uh, Said. 
So I noticed that, um, including yourself, um, a lot of faculty come from um, very uh, unique and diverse uh, disciplinary backgrounds. So you know, ranging from political science to um, usual ones in strategy or management. Um, how would you say that this uh, diverse environment um, at Oxford Said has shaped your work and how important do you think this is for PhD students and junior scholars in developing their work? Uh, I think it's significant. It's not always helpful. Um, so, so we, and certainly initially, we recruited from quite diverse backgrounds as a sign of weakness. Because at that point, we weren't paying a lot and we were new. So we were quite glad to hire anybody. That's how I got hired. Um, it was tough. We had huge teaching loads as well. And we were creating a new, build, a new institution. So it was kind of challenging at the time. So we have to an extent made a virtue of necessity. And I've just been involved, somebody asked about um, online education um, and teaching. I've just been working quite hard with a colleague of mine, Trudy Lang, on an online strategy course, which draws upon as many of my colleagues as possible. Here's my belief that we're going to have lots of online strategy courses. Um, they're all going to they're liable to look rather the same. So you've got to be able to draw upon the research in your department to make it look different. And that way you'll get your colleagues to, com to communicate in a passionate way online, which is really important, and you'll have something distinctive. So we are diverse. And I think we, we are beginning to knit together a, a positive voice and bring it that diversity to focused um, point of leverage, if you like. Um, and uh, I think that's been a good conversation we've all had amongst ourselves. We had, this is a terrible, terrible, terrible word. Um, at one early stage in de developing this, we contrasted Oxford's approach with the mainstream approach. So on the one hand, there was strategy orthodoxy. And on the other hand, there was Oxford's Oxfordoxy. And we're gonna, our doxy was gonna be different to everybody else's. Well, we've arrived in a middle point and we're never gonna use the Oxfordoxy word again, but um, certainly not with an online executive education. So, but I think the diversity is going to be important as a source of differentiation. Only you're going to have to do a lot of hard intellectual work bringing it together into a coherent package which executives will buy or MBA students will buy. Um, this is executive education particularly. Um, but it's possible, it's been a tremendous thing to try, but hard work. Nina, what was behind your question? Um, well, I have a unique experience. I was doing a PhD at Oxford, but in the school of, um, in transport studies at the School of Geography and Environment. And now I've, um, oh, right. I've, I've moved uh, to London Business School um, to pursue. Well, how do you, oh, no, you probably better not say My, my research was at the intersection of the two at the time. So I, I see a big difference between um, the two uh, types of uh, doctoral programs. And um, yeah. And I'm just, yeah, and especially with uh, Oxford Said, um, and I, which I find in interesting, um, attending some seminars there with very diverse faculty, uh, yeah. different disciplines and the discussions there um, versus having a more focused strategy for faculty. 
Yeah, well, I think there are lots of advantages to having a more focused strategy faculty um, in terms of brute career power, focus is, is valuable. But, but I, I wonder, well, LBS will certainly be able to do that. Um, but I do think it's going to be important when we're competing in an online world. London Business School can compete. It's London. People want to visit London. Oxford, people kind of want to go to the old buildings. Those things are, aren't going to be available anymore. So if it's all, or a lot of it's online, we've got to have something special to say. Now, we can make our diversity into strength. LBS may be able to make its focus into a strength. But whatever it is, your research has to, has to, is going to be the differentiator now. It's what we have to say which is going to matter, which is great, because ultimately you can't rely a bit, you know, Oxford's got some old kits, some old buildings. That's, that's cheating. Yeah, it's, it's the research we do which matters. Thank you, Nina. Um, we also have a question from Jing, Jing Tang. Oh, hi, Professor Richard. Thank you so much. Hi, so I just have one question. So do you have some pieces of advices for the PhD students when they do presentation, like in some conferences or even do job market talking? Uh, okay, so I'm planning the retirement speech for a member of faculty. And I remember when this particular individual came on to speak and he was quite advanced at that stage so do you need powerpoints now okay would you like me to give a a signal when time's nearly up he said no and he talked and he finished bang on time so the key thing jing is to finish on time get your message over and finish on time because you're going to have classes, you're going to have seminars. If you can't finish on time, and many people can't, they oh, I'm sorry, I only got halfway through. I was going to say this. It's too late. Just make sure you're going to get your message across and finish on time. It's as basic as that. And I remember this particular person, but without even the props of PowerPoints, just doing his stuff. And you knew that he was in total command of his material because he could do that. So if you can do, do you know, well-disciplined, tightly organized, and especially time, um, time constrained or time, you know, time targeted piece of work, then that's great. That says you'll be good in the classroom. You won't hog time in committees. You'll be good with colleagues. It says everything about you because you only talk about the time, so the context is not that important, right? <laughs> so the content is not that important. <laughs> well, they, they, they've read the content. Jing, they've read the content. They know the content already. What they want to see is, can you perform? Will you be a good in class? Will you be a good colleague? Um, the person who doesn't use their time well, if somebody's not going to succeed, it's not going to be good in class, not going to be able to, to write papers, they're going to waste their colleagues' time. So being disciplined about time in your job talk is a signal of so many other things. 
Now, it's worthwhile dwelling on. I could tell you something about content, I could tell you something about PowerPoint slides, I could tell you something about how to deal with questions, but ultimately, if you can command that time effectively, authoritatively, and with discipline, you're communicating that you're gonna be a powerful colleague. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. And now I'm thinking of all the times at seminars where I've gone over time. Oh, boy. Do. Maybe we've, yeah, I don't know how much time we have here. But. Um, we have a question, Richard, from Lorenza. So, hello, everyone. First of all, thanks for organizing uh, the talk and the exchange. And hello, Richard. Thank you for your time and sharing oh, yes. your advice. Um, I got a question um, about a topic that you already touched, which was working together and collaborating with um, senior scholars. And I was just wondering from your personal experience, um, you know, what are your tips for approaching more um, senior scholars with regard to collaboration? It could also be like if you would like to receive some feedback, um, you know, from experts um, in our fields. Yeah, and I was just wondering about, you know, maybe successful ways, maybe unsuccessful ways, because I imagine that um, probably a lot of people uh, try to approach you in order to get your feedback or to get to engage with you. And yeah, just um, there will be something of interest. Okay, so it's tough. Uh, Samina, you probably will have the similar problems. And you have to be, Lorenzo, and I think I said this earlier in one way or another, extremely tolerant of the forgetfulness, the distractedness, and general disorganization of senior scholars. Um, because we can. Yeah, so they will have different timetables and so on and so forth. If you, so sometimes if people will send me an email with a paper, sometimes I will respond with some comments, but not all the time. It's almost physically impossible to do that all the time anyway. There has to be a reason. Um, so you have to, I suppose it's going back to selling. What's your USP? You know, why do you think you know, let's, let's say someone like Jay Barney would pay attention to you. Why would he be interested in what you've got and really refine it and offer him something which might attract him? And I think it's, it's a gradual process. It goes back to the reviewing. It may not be the reviewing, but if you're organizing a PDW or you're organizing a, a panel at the Academy of Management or the Strategic Management Society, you can build up a relationship that way. And then, oh, by the way, Jay, I'm just using him as a sort of godlike figure of some of the extreme seniority. I'm working on this. I think you might be interested in it because it will help with, you don't have to say exactly these words, it resolves that conundrum you have. You or you might have. Yeah. Now, if you uh, put it in those words, that would come over as patronizing. But you just find a, a way of helping Jay. Jay is the generic senior scholar. Yeah, and it can build up trust. I mean, one of the things I'm always impressed by every year at the Academy is how many junior scholars will put together PDWs and they do it with impeccable organizing skills. And they're always chasing up, you know, have you done this? Have you done this? This is due now. Be that impeccably well organized person. If, going back to what I said to Jing, I think um, discipline 
and good organisation will put you ahead of nearly everybody. There's that relentlessness again. Don't be obnoxious as you're relentless, but just keep on it and be disciplined and organised so that the senior scholars don't have to be. Because they do tend to have far too many projects on. Um, so you just help them doing that. Lorenzo, is that helpful? Do you recognise any of that? Does that seem to resonate? Yeah, that, that resonates uh, with me and makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, but um, just so of, of course it's it's quite helpful. Just uh, and don't be afraid that I'm going to write you an email right away. But I'm just what is something that um, you know? What are you looking out for? Is it like that you see passion in someone's um, you know research interest? Is it coherence? I don't know. Just uh, yeah. I'd like to see passion. I sometimes get slightly scared by ambition. There's a slight difference. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and I, I have to reiterate something Richard said, Lorenzo, is having junior scholars organize PDWs, for example, for our next academy for STR is highly suggested, something we encourage. So, um, Richard, we have another question from Jeff Banning. Jeff, go ahead. Hi, Richard. Thanks for the uh, for the presentation. Uh, when uh, I saw that this was being offered, and I saw that your focus was on strategy as practice, I said that guy is speaking my language. I love that. So, as someone who's uh, who's been uh, in business and a practitioner for over twenty five years, and has come into academia much later in his career, um, I find it difficult to separate the. Um, I'll call it the strategy from the OB, what, what we typically refer to as yeah. organizational behavior, as I would consider any practitioner a cross-functional <laughs> management practitioner. So I'm just wondering, as I get into academia, what would you recommend in terms of how to focus and uh, present my ideas around management generally into strategy as practice or organizational behavior how do you how, how would you position that and, and talk to other scholars and 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 also present to journals in this yeah. a very cross-functional <laughs> mindset i think that's good and I, I and jeff you're absolutely right so i tend now to do most of my teaching with executives precisely because they don't recognize the boundaries of strategy and organizations and things like that because they're doing dealing with people all the time it's not very hard for them to think of strategy as something people do um because that's what they do themselves uh it's mba students of a certain sort perhaps maybe the less experienced who uh, who see it just as a set of technical skills they want to to learn um so a small distinction and it may not i may be misunderstanding you but in the academy, at least, organisational behaviour, sadly, has become slightly over-associated with a kind of micro-psychology. Samina, I may be not quite au fait with exactly how it is now, but where I see the overlap most greatly is in something which is called organisational theory. That's a bad label um, for what it is. And Jeff, I don't know whether these labels are meaningful to you at your stage but organization theory is a kind of sociology of organizations and inv involves psychology too but not only psychology and i we have in the strategy group i think nina raised earlier the diversity of our group 
at least half the members of the strategy group would describe themselves as organization theorists first almost before strategists. So Aero Vara, Tom Lawrence, possibly myself, maybe Teppo Felin. Um, so organization theory stroke strategy is a natural partnership and you'll see many strategy scholars. So, you know, this, I think this is the case for you too. You publish quite often um, in organization science, um, you know, organization studies, which will see itself as a sociology journal ultimately, and things like that. Strategy scholars do both, and it's, it's not a problem. Jeff, am I answering your question? Yeah, so, so part of it is, so, so partly. <laughs> so, so, so part of it is the position within the academy, but part of it is even just the present, presentation as a, uh, a would-be scholar to groups outside of the academy, both um, journals, so kind of which journal, and also even presenting to practitioners who, who, who don't necessarily want to see you as a, quote, strategist or as a, quote, uh, behaviorist. <laughs> so again, coming back from a background of strategy implement strategy as implementation, because strategy doesn't mean anything unless you can actually sure. practice it. So that's kind of how I'm trying to understand what's the best way as a former practitioner to present this and to utilize this as a scholar and to, to you know, to present that outside. Well, to executives, you'd be presenting yourself simply as a management scholar, I think. And I don't think when I work with executives, they barely trouble themselves with a label or within 30 seconds, they've forgotten whatever they've read about me. They, they formed a quite different impression from those first 30 seconds anyway. Um, in, in terms of journals, you know, I published in a range of journals, um, by no means only in the strategic management journal. I wish I had published more in the strategic management journal. Um, so, yeah, I publish often in organization studies, I used to publish in general management studies, organization science, which is sociologically inspired organization theory type journals. So I will be relaxed about that. It goes back to don't, don't see yourself as only publishing in strategy journals if you don't want to. Um, I've got one or two colleagues who will only publish in SMJ just about, you know, that's their prime strategic management journal, that's their prime audience, but I don't think anyone need to find themselves exclusively in that way. I think I'm still rambling a little bit around your point. I think it's partly because I'm not absolutely sure that your premise is such a, a compelling one after all in the end. I don't think you're going to be need worry too much about this. It's not, I wouldn't give me sleepless nights, Jeff. I think you should have one last word. No, thank you. That was, and that's, uh, again, just as I get into academia, I'm, I'm feeling the sense that I'm being asked to or forced to be in a specific area. And so you, you've made me feel a little bit more okay, comfortable here, here, about Here's that. something. <laughs> feeling that um, pressure. I think there's still a better labor market for strategy scholars than for organization theory scholars. <laughs> so you might, and I think you can probably get better consulting and executive opportunities through strategy. But in the end, it's the individual and the message which are going to matter. 
So if you, you're going to believe in your identity, but the identity of strategies is slightly easier to sell. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. So Richard, at the end, we always like to ask each of our distinguished scholars some fun questions. So I like to call these rapid fire questions. All right, and they're harmless, trust me, so don't be worried. Uh, but they're a way for us to get to know you more holistically as an individual, all right, beyond scholarship. So are you ready? Ready for some fun? Okay. <laughs> what is your favorite dessert? Oh, I just got, a, I have had two recently. Um, it's an Indian version, slightly confected version of a cheesecake, much lighter and it's upside down. It's great. Um, I used to look up the recipe and perhaps send it to you. Oh, send it to me. Okay. That sounds um, good. But I, I, I eat all desserts. So, all right. So, um, so let me know what that one is. Um, and you've probably traveled the world and I'm curious, what is your favorite city? Ah, oh, that's hard. I enjoyed living in Paris for a year. When when I did you spend quite a lot of time in Toulouse? I like France. Okay, was this when you were at HEC Paris? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know, so far we've, you know, we're doing twenty four of these Meet the Scholar interviews, and I think Paris is the majority. What most people have said, it is a beautiful city. It's but a lot of Parisians hate it. <laughs> Ironic, <laughs> isn't do it? without it, but they hate living there. <laughs> anyway. Um, so if you had to choose, if you could choose and you had to live in the mountains or by the ocean, which would you choose? Ocean. Okay. And when you're not reading strategy, you know, scholarship, do you like to read fiction or nonfiction? A bit of both, quite a lot of both. Sorry. What kind of fiction do you like to read? Uh, I've been wading through the Jonathan Fanson novels recently. Um, tomes about family life usually end up well, so kind of nice. Um, and also, is that it looks like Costas Marquides? Hi, Costas. Um, I'm just gonna go. Um, and then, uh, oh, stand by will be Jane Austen. Wow, Austen, always a good one. I feel like Costas is crashing to hear what the secret fun questions are at the end of the session because we're interviewing him tomorrow. So Costas, they're absolutely agony. You wouldn't want to do this at all. <laughs> You're muted, Costas. I have just arrived in Cyprus and I'm just checking my internet connection to make sure that you can hear me tomorrow. We can hear you. Yeah. Sounds good. I'm sorry I missed. I was scheduled to be arrived here earlier and listen to what Richard had to say, but unfortunately, did I miss all of it, Richard? This, I, I remember. Do you remember you once did a gig in Dublin and I was yeah. your packed? <laughs> and I just did the warm up and then you did a fantastic show and I thought, geez. Yeah, yeah. And you've done it again. I'm your warm up again. <laughs> well, you can blame British Airways for being three hours late. You can blame British Airways for a lot in life, can't you? <laughs> <laughs>
Well, Richard, don't worry. There were 20 people that were the warm up for you. So, <laughs> yeah. okay. uh, but I'm not done. I'm not done. I have two more questions. So, okay. if you know, you, you've worked with so many executives, if you could be a CEO today, which industry would you want to participate in and why? That's a hard question. I'd like to be Jeff Bezos, but without the divorce. <laughs> so something related to the internet or online? I guess so. Well, whatever's next. I mean, they are old firms now. So I'm the last person to ask what's, uh, you know, what's coming next. But something is coming next and it won't just be more Amazon. It won't be more Google. It won't be more Facebook. Right. And all right. So I'm, and I'll let you off with saying you want, you would love to be Jeff Bezos. I, I would, I would love to be his wife right now, but last question. And I'll let you off the hook, Richard, which is if you could have dinner with any person from the historical past that's deceased, who would it be? Oh, that would be Jane Austen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. So, so you no, I wouldn't want to be written up by her afterwards. <laughs> well, thank you, Richard, so much for spending time with us today. We've had almost an hour and 40 minutes of your time. Um, I've learned so much, uh, as, as I'm sure others have. And so on behalf of the division, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you to Nell for helping with the session and Maria Rita, who had to leave. Um, I'm preparing for Costas tomorrow. That's right. So Nell is interviewing. He can't Costas. pull a fast one on me. <laughs> oh, Nell, you've got the hard one. <laughs> we'll have to make sure he sticks to time. But Costas, yeah. I'm, I'm letting you know now, we're going to change the fun questions so that you can't be prepared in advance. All right. What was the fun question this time around? There were multiple ones. We're not telling you. Oh, dear. <laughs> Richard, any, oh, any final yeah. words from you? I'm ready. Um, <laughs> all, all, good luck to you, junior scholars. It's a different game to my game. It's quite tough, but you're better prepared. I think the, the, the state of yeah. training is much better than it used to be. So it's a hard game, but you're well trained for it. Thank you, Richard. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Hope to see you all at a few more of these Meet the Scholars sessions. All right. Okay, thanks, Amina. Thanks, Nell. Bye. Bye, Samina. Bye, everybody. Bye. Yeah, Costas, good luck.